This week in KMA Land, Shenandoah's old water plant could get a facelift. New officers take the oath in Clarinda. Statewide recognition for a local mentor. And Red Oak school officials tackle the issues of cell phones in the classroom. All that and more on this week in KMA Land, our weekly look back at the top news stories from around KMA Land this week. Good morning, I'm Ryan Matheny in for the vacationing Mike Peterson. And we begin with the Page County Board of Supervisors as they continue to work through their comprehensive review of the county's wind energy ordinance. At their regular meeting on Thursday this week, the Page County Board of Supervisors discussed some possible amendments to noise or decibel requirements, feeder line depths, right-of-way setbacks, and general safety guidelines that are laid out in the county's wind ordinance. Ultimately, the supervisors concluded placing a 40-decibel maximum noise level measured from a non-participating landowner's property line but citing at least one example from Nebraska and Gage County that measured from a non-participant's residence. Supervisor Todd Mayer says the limits could be even lower during the overnight hours. This particular ordinance, they had a 55 decibel limit, but it could only be that for 10 minutes and in length. And then they had between the hours of 10 p.m. and 7 a.m., they were required to be at 37 decibels or less. And then during the daytime, they could not exceed over 40 decibels at the non-participating residence. Board members also agreed an independent licensed acoustic engineer must conduct the measurements. While they've reached an initial consensus, Supervisors Chair Jacob Holmes suggested using Gage County's ordinance as a starting point to continue to look further into addressing low-frequency sounds that the turbines may produce and ensure residents are protected. You know, there's something to do with infrasound here. It's a different kind. It's DBC versus DBA. It's a different kind of noise low frequency noise, yeah. it's a different thing. So we need to, I'm sure they've studied this, map this out. So I guess we need to look at this a little more and find the, the right, correct levels. Additionally, the board agreed to implement a 10-foot feeder line depth, which includes the power lines used to carry electricity from the turbines to the power grid. Holmes says the current 48-inch or 4-foot minimum is typically where farmers place most of their drain tile. He adds that deeper depth uh, should easily prevent anybody from digging into the line and account for any soil erosion on a hillside, particularly given the amount of electricity traveling through the line. Generally, it's 4 or 5 foot, or maybe 6. It just depends if you're going in a hill and you have to get fall. You build, I think they can dig around up to 7 foot to get fall, and, and you know you got to think about building the terraces because you, you cut the hillside to build the terrace. You, you lose several feet in that process. Big thing is we, we don't want anybody hitting this thing. And they're not burying a phone wire either. We're talking about a major amount of electricity going through there. The board also agreed an individual be hired or money set aside by the respective developer to document the installation of the line and ensure everything is mapped out. Regarding the county right-of-way, the supervisors agreed to require turbines to either set back far enough or situated so they don't cast any shadow flicker onto county roads. Holmes says regulations would hopefully avoid any dangers posed to drivers from the flicker or ice buildup on the turbines during colder months. I would like to have a shadow flicker and ice throw. There is no way that can be allowed to go on the road. There's qualified third parties that read this. They could do modeling software where they put them. I just want to make sure on the right on the right away there is not a strobe effect from a wind turbine to hurt to cause somebody to have issues driving. Board members also discussed certain safety items ranging from ensuring their automatic and manual controls along with fire suppression systems on the turbines. Supervisors plan to review other topics regarding the wind ordinance next week, including decommissioning requirements and fees for permit applications. Speaking of wind energy, at least one Taylor County official is pleased with the input that they received at a wind ordinance discussion earlier this week. 
Meeting in special session on Tuesday night, the Taylor County Board of Supervisors held an information-only discussion regarding the county's wind ordinance at the Lenox Community Center. Representatives from a wind turbine company were also expected to be present to answer questions from residents. Supervisors Chair Ron Fitzgerald tells KMA News he was pleased with the turnout and opinions received from local residents. We had a good turnout, uh, somewhere between 150 and 180, I believe. It was an information meeting only. Uh, people got up. They had two minutes or so to talk and uh, just voice their opinions and uh, their concerns. And uh, we had about 42 or three people that spoke. From the many residents providing input, Fitzgerald said one common item brought up was setbacks from a landowner's residence or property line laid out in the county wind ordinance, which has also been a frequent debate in other area counties. Uh, Taylor County Ordinance currently lays out a 1,500-foot setback from a non-participant's residence and 1.1 times the turbine's height from the property line. However, Fitzgerald says the board heard differing opinions on the matter. There's some people that want to want the setbacks to be, I think it's 3,280 feet from a property line. Uh, we also heard from landowners and other people that uh, were uh, happy with where they're at. And so we had we had various various uh, comments on that. While they have yet to open an official review of the ordinance, Fitzgerald says the plan uh, they do plan to consider the public's input for any future changes. Uh, we'll just take it under advisement and. Uh, some of these, some of the concerns we'd heard before, but it was just a, it was a good meeting. Everybody uh, was real respectful, um, and I think everybody had a chance to voice their concerns one way or the other. He expects a second informational meeting on the county's wind ordinance to be held in the near future. Adams, Taylor, Ringgold, and Union County officials also briefly discussed wind ordinances during their Quad County meeting late last month. Apex Clean Energy is currently studying building the Black Maple Wind Project in Taylor County. It's a proposed 400-megawatt project. Shenandoah officials have taken the next step in offloading a vacant city property. At the regular meeting this week, the Shenandoah City Council set a public hearing for its May 9th meeting on the sale of the city's old water plant at 204 Grass Street to Austin and Kayla Terry. Structures remain vacant since the city's new $12 million facility went online in 2017. Austin says his plan would entail renovating a part of the structure into a rentable living space. In the old uh, top floor where they had kind of like a break room and uh, there was some shower uh, up there and a couple empty rooms. It could kind of be turned into like a apartment, uh, Airbnb maybe. Additionally, Austin says warehouse on the property presents opportunities for additional storage space in the community. Following an initial cleanup of the property, Kayla says they also plan to secure the area better to allow for exterior storage opportunities. Uh, initially, we want to secure the fence and add some privacy slots so that way if anybody had interest in like RV storage, boat storage, you know, stuff that like we don't have a whole lot of in this town um, to where it's kind of contained a little bit, you know, with the privacy slots. And then we would start working on the inside going for more like self-storage inside there as well. And the couple says they have no intention of demolishing any portion of the structure and will focus instead on rehab efforts. While they haven't had an architect formally spec out the building just yet, Kayla says it hopes to complete the renovations for the property within the next three years. Well, Shenandoah City officials have also formally thrown their support behind establishing a new school resource officer with the local school district. At its meeting this week, the Shenandoah City Council approved a 2080 agreement with the Shenandoah School District establishing an SRO position beginning in July and running through June of 2026. Last month, the school board in Shenandoah approved to enter negotiations with the city following a series of incidents this school year. 
And uh, Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen applauded the efficient collaboration efforts between Police Chief Josh Gray, City Administrator A.J. Lyman, and Shenandoah School Superintendent Dr. Kerry Nelson to provide an additional safety measure at local school buildings. This was done quickly, but I think it was necessary. And, uh, you know, this is something that we just have to be looking at because, sadly, uh, it's what's happening in, in the world today. And, um, you know, we don't want to be behind on this. And if we can have an SRO out there and uh, uh, for the safety part of it, and for the uh, all the students, I, I think it's a great deal. Lyman tells KMA News the position would be a full-time officer that would move between the various school buildings and events throughout the school year. While he emphasized the SRO wouldn't be there to discipline students as that falls under the school district's jurisdiction, he says it's one of the ways the department can directly provide preventative measures. They're there for as kind of a as outreach, I would say, uh, on behalf of the police department, you know, to help build that trust within the community and help stop problems before they become problems. Uh, you know, it's one of the few opportunities I would say the police department has to do prevention work. Uh, great way to do that. On top of improving safety and community outreach, McQueen adds the position will also bolster the city's police force, particularly when school isn't in session. You know, during the summer and stuff, he'll be on the regular uh, rotation and so forth. So we've actually added, you know, another part-time, basically part-time officer on the force but you know not during school year so uh, yeah it's a benefit because uh, we you know uh, we did hire a new officer two weeks ago so you know we're back to full staff but having a having an extra especially through the summer is great because of vacations and, and time off like that. McQueen adds that talks of adding SROs at several area school districts have recently been picking up steam and he hopes Shenandoah can be an example of one way to provide the position. You know I had mayors uh, from other uh communities to call and say you know we're, we're going to start working on this you know what are you guys doing as far as your uh, 2080 agreement what are you doing this way this way so you know i like i kind of said at the meeting last night i think this sparked something in southwest iowa that you know we all have that need uh fremont county's been doing it in a couple of their schools but we we need to get caught up here and uh if you know we can share information and and the rest of the uh, school districts Look at this and realize that it's, it is affordable and it is for the students. The agreement now heads to the Shenandoah School Board for approval to officially establish the position. McQueen says the city will begin advertising for the position as soon as possible. They hope to find an applicant who already has a school resource officer certification. Well, speaking of law enforcement, two new police officers have officially joined the force in Clarinda. During the Clarinda City Council's regular meeting this week, Clarinda Police Chief Keith Brothers officially swore in officers Jeffrey Kane and Briar Hoyt. Brothers commended Kane and Hoyt for their commitment to the process of becoming an officer. These officers have to take written tests, psychological tests, physical fitness assessments, um, and go through oral interviews, uh, thorough background investigation, before they can even be made a conditional offer of employment. So for them to get to this point, is hard work. Kane is a U.S. Army veteran and a member of Clarinda's Volunteer Fire Department, while Hoyt's a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. Following the swearing-in ceremony, Kane and Hoyt will prepare to attend the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy in Johnston. After tonight, officers Kane and Hoyt will attend the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy. They leave on the night of April 30th. They will begin 16 weeks of intensive training at the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy on the morning of May 1st. They will graduate on Friday, August 18th. Brother says the training doesn't stop once the officers are certified as they have to go un undergo field training once they return to Clarinda. Officers Kane and Hoyt will then become involved in 14 weeks of field training with veteran officers of the Clarinda Police Department 
Some field training is already taking place and they've both already been exposed to a lot of different situations and uh, my staff's doing an excellent job of uh, training these two uh, gentlemen to be police officers. In addition to the new police officers, Clarinda's volunteer fire department also has a new member following the council's meeting. The council unanimously approved the appointment of Andrea Muller to the city's firefighting force. Fire Chief Roger Williams says Muller's addition brings his department up to 25 total volunteers. Still to come on this week in KMA land, big recognition for a Shenandoah resident. A documentary relives a moment of resiliency in Malvern, and Shenandoah students are going to the dogs. All that and more coming up on This Week in KMA Land. Welcome back to This Week in KMA Land. Some of the Shenandoah School District's younger performers will get a chance to shine early next month. Our very own Mike Peterson has a preview of what's coming to the stage. Have Shenandoah Elementary School students gone to the dogs? <laughs> No, and yes, final rehearsals continue for the elementary school's production of 101 Dalmatians. Performances take place May 5th and 6th at 7 p.m. at the Gladys Worsick Jones Auditorium in Shenandoah. Julie Murren is the musical's director. Murren tells KMA News up to 40 students have stayed after school on purpose for the past three months to prepare for this production based in the classic Disney animated movie. So these kids have been working since the end of January and they stay a couple of days a week after school. They just stay right after school for about an hour and then the production is their culminating project of that theater camp. Murren says rehearsals have been separated between grade levels. We have the kindergarten and first graders staying um, one day a week um, and they are very highly involved um, as the puppies. All of the kindergarten and first graders play puppies but then our second, third, and fourth graders play all of the other roles so we have not yet put them all together in one show which will be a production, let me tell you what. Third grader McKenna Priest is among the students involved in the production. McKenna enjoys portraying the diabolical Cruella DeVille. Do you like playing the villain in this thing? Yes, I do, because I get to, like, scream, and I usually don't scream. And you get to say, uh, what, what is it you say? I say, like, nincompoop and stuff. Fourth grader Madison Baldwin, who plays Anita, is excited about being in a musical. I like singing and dancing a lot. I've been singing since I was, like, two years old. And the reason why I like singing a lot is because my mom is really good at it, and she kind of, like, taught me some things about it. And I just like expressing myself through like songs and dances. And 101 Dalmatians is also a family affair for third grader Dominic Lawson, who plays Roger. My brother's going to be in the play. Good. By the way, would you want to have 101 Dalmatians yourself? Why why would you have 101 Dalmatians? (laughs) Well, my mom told me about the play back then when I was nine. I'm nine and a half years old now. And, um... I was excited, so that's why my mom put me in to it because she thinks I'm going to have a lot of fun. JK4 music instructor Linnea Shook is the production's assistant director. Shook says the elementary cast represents the next generation of the school district's performers following in the footsteps of students in middle school and high school productions. I think we have kind of the cream of the crop, like the ones who really like music, the ones who can sing on pitch and who have good theatrical skills, really, you know, they are the ones that signed up. So... 
uh, it's a lot of fun working with kids that are really interested in theater and uh, music. All seats are $5 general admission. Audience members are also asked to bring donations of dog and cat food cat litter and or cash for people for pause. Pictures of the production as well as a video version of the story are available with the web story at kmaland.com. Mike Peterson reporting. Thank you, Mike. A Shenandoah resident has received statewide recognition for their efforts in mentorship. Taylor Getz was named one of two recipients of the 2023 Excellence in Mentoring Award through the Iowa Mentoring Partnership. Getz, who also works full-time with Leisure Boniface Baldwin and Company Accounting in Shenandoah, has been with May Mentoring for nearly seven years, serving as a finance chair for the group's board before becoming a mentor. Getz tells KMA News she was honored to be nominated for the award. I was surprised. I didn't know that Kim had nominated me, and there are a million wonderful people that help with May Mentoring, so I was definitely surprised. Getz has also served on the board's strategic planning subcommittee and the Community and Workforce Development Presentations Committee for the past six years. Also serving as the May Mentoring Board Secretary, Getz says she delved into the organization's mentoring side after seeing many area youth looking for a mentor. There are just always kids in our community that are eager and waiting and hopeful for a mentor to um, give them a little extra quality time and maybe fill their cup up and just encourage them. Getz says she'd had the privilege of working with the same individual ever since she began serving as a mentor. She adds that the experience has been incredible for her and her mentee, but also for her own children and family members who have welcomed the mentee with open arms. We've done all sorts of things from just having supper and playing games at my house on a weeknight to going to the zoo, um, doing community service things, baking cookies. Like, we've done a wide variety of things. And a lot of times she just comes along with whatever I had planned with my family anyways, and she's just another member of our family. Established in 2009, the Excellence in Mentoring Awards allow Iowa Mentoring Partnership certified programs to recognize outstanding longtime youth mentors. Individuals selected have served as a mentor for at least two years and exemplify both the spirit and positive benefits of mentoring. All of the emotions of a disastrous fire in KMA land are relived in a recently released short documentary. They came from all over, tells the story of Malvern's legendary Mulholland grocery store, the fire that destroyed the more than 150-year-old business in December 2021, the massive response from fire departments and first responders from five counties, the fire's impact on the city and region, and the plans to rebuild the business. Officials with Ventureland, a company producing the documentary, joined Meta and the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs in hosting a special screening of the film at Floor Cinema in Des Moines on Tuesday. Owner Tom O'Holland tells KMA News viewing the documentary at an earlier screening was emotional. I've seen bits of it, little bits of it before, but, you know, for me especially, it's it's extremely emotional. But it speaks out to how much my community cares about me and how much I care about my community and why I want to come back. Academy Award-winning director Reka Zatabshi and her crew spent a considerable time in Malvern last December filming the documentary. Mulholland says he's pleased with the end product. You know, there's a lot of things that they filmed that didn't make it in there. You know, I know that there's a lot of different ways to tell the story, but what I see, they did a fantastic job of everything, and, and I'm so appreciative of it all. 
Kira McCoy is a small business advocate at Meta and one of the film's executive producers. McCoy says she learned of Mulholland's story through a MetaBoost Leaders Network session and felt it needed to be told to the entire country. Tom's story is one that really struck me in the gut because, you know, I hear a lot of small business stories. I meet with a lot of small business owners. For Tom, his story so clearly depicted how important small businesses are to local communities. McCoy hopes the film demonstrates that supporting small businesses isn't just a nice thing to do, it's necessary. This story is very unique because a town lost a very cornerstone business and it's created quite an impact leaving their community as a food desert, but it's coming back and so um, it's a really great you know, story of uh, resilience and rebuild. Mulholland says he hopes the documentary will lead to more donations and new funding sources for rebuilding efforts as securing enough cash for the project is still a struggle. 99% of what we've heard has been you know, how much people are looking forward to us coming back, how much support we've got and stuff. There's always you know, some naysayer because it's taken longer than what we expected. You know, I've run into delays every time I turn around, but I'm hoping that within the next two weeks Actual work will start, uh, you know, on the wall of the building next door, but it's very, very close, and once things get going, then it's going to start rolling along. Another screening is planned before small business leaders in Washington, D.C. This week, producers also plan other viewings at film festivals across the country. Small pieces of footage from KMA's two-part video series on Mulholland's Fire's first anniversary are included in the film. A video version of this story is available at kmaland.com. Well, as brush fires in KMA land become a more common occurrence, one area fire department is looking to upgrade its rural field and brush fire equipment. The Red Oak Fire Department, in partnership with the Red Oak Volunteer Fire and Rescue Association, is raising funds to purchase a new brush truck. Red Oak Fire Chief John Bruce tells KMA News they intend to replace the current vehicle that's begun to show some wear and tear. Additionally, Bruce says the new vehicle will have several upgrades, including more significant ground clearance to reduce wear. Because when we go into the rural setting or have to go off um, road into um, miscellaneous terrain, you want to, it's imperative to have that clearance just so you're not um, tearing up the bottom part of the truck or, or getting stuck. Um, this truck also will allow us to have uh, increased compartment space. We have none on our current truck. A little bit more space in the cab for gear and equipment. Bruce says the goal is to reach $200,000, and as of last week, they've raised nearly half of that. The latest bid they received for the vehicle came in around $210,000. He adds that brush trucks are imperative for fighting fires well off of any road in a field where larger fire trucks can't go. While heavy rainfall last week has prompted some area open burning bans to be rescinded, Bruce adds drought-like and dry conditions throughout much of the past year have made brush and field fires a nearly year-round battle. Typically in the past, of course, it all based on moisture content, snowfall, rainfall. We've just been so dry that even up as to last night, I know uh, they had a small grass fire over on Highway 71 and 250th on the east part of the county while the you know we were out for the storms on the west part of the county. So it's just a, nobody's really had a reprieve from this season, so this, this equipment is, is getting exercised almost on a daily basis. But Bruce says there's still quite a bit of time before a new vehicle will be available to his department. On top of continuing to find funding opportunities, he adds they're also dealing with years worth of wait time between the order date and receive date. Those wishing to donate to the Red Oak Volunteer Fire and Rescue Association can find online options on the department's Facebook page, or you can mail a check to the Association for the Truck Fund to 1904 North Broadway Street in Red Oak, Iowa, 51566. 
Well, Red Oak school officials are continuing to deliberate the best course of action regarding cell phone use during school hours. During its regular meeting this week, the Red Oak School Board met with administrative staff to discuss current cell phone policies in place at the two primary campuses, along with potential action steps to curb cell phone use during class. School Superintendent Ron Lorenz says the discussion comes after a survey he sent out showed that 74% of the over 360 respondents indicated they would support implementing more stringent cell phone regulations during the school day. Inman Elementary Principal Jane Shelley says her building has avoided many cell phone issues since implementing a door-to-door policy during school hours. So from the moment they enter the building, we ask them to put cell phones away. Um, We do allow them to get cell phones out after we have dismissed school. So they may get them out of their bag, check. I do know that we have some that check for, is somebody going to pick me up or am I a walker? Um, Most of those calls come through the school office now, though since we kind of do this door-to-door policy. And now the uh, board is expected to tackle the issue at its June meeting. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land and for more information all the time sure you log on to kmaland.com where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Ryan Matheny. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.